Minus 15. Respect all, fear none. Into the upper deck. Intensity is not a perfect. Oh, mercy. Five, four, three, two, one. From inside the Masson newsroom, it is the Masson All Access Podcast. A broken-wristed Paul Mancano here with Brendan Mortensen, as always. Brendan's going to be a good podcast. We are going to talk to Alex Fast, a pitcher list. He's going to break down some of the exciting young pitchers we have seen for the Baltimore Orioles so far. And we're going to be talking about uh, a lot of young guys on this Orioles team. But uh, first, what's your hottest NFL take? The NFL is back tonight this can be it took you quite a while to develop your hottest take it because did. You, you have many takes i do and these can't be dolphins related no I, I i wanted to find the spiciest one i think i found a pretty spicy one what is it uh my hot take is that christian mccaffrey will break the nfl record for most yards from scrimmage he was about 200 yards off last year they just gave him a boatload of money and he is the biggest piece on that offense by a mile. What is the record? Uh, Chris Johnson, I think, holds the record with just over 2,500 yards. McCaffrey had 23-something last year. I mean, Matt Rule with that offense, that's probably going to be pretty good. Yeah. That, that, that. That's, my, that's my spicy take. All right. My, my sp- spicy take is probably not all that spicy, which is that the Tampa Bay Bucks are going to suck. There's just no way they can be good. There's just no way they can be I good. mean, there's a few ways they could be no, good. No, you, you take a 48-year-old Tom Brady, a 90-year-old Rob Gronkowski, uh, they signed Leonard Fournette, who's never going to be good and never has been good. Oh. That team is just... Leonard they, Fournette no, has... He, is, he has never been good in his NFL career. Uh, Great at LSU. Uh, just not good. That is a spicy I, I see them winning four games. Four? Four games. Four? Maybe five. Maybe five. I think the Bucks. Not living up to expectations this year would be if they win, like, eight games. But four? I think it's going to be funny because both the Bucks are going to be terrible and the Patriots are not not terrible, but not good. See, no. I, I disagree. So I think, like I think both where, of them are going to be good. That is a, Cam Newton is on a mission That's right a now. breakup where neither party is happy after the breakup. That's Bill fair. Belichick I think the Patriots breaking. will be slightly worse, but they still have Cam Newton. Yeah. Well, uh, other than in, uh, elsewhere in the sports world, because we have nothing to talk about with the Orioles, but no. I do want to get these takes out of the way because I have been <laughs> waiting to fire off these takes. Glad to see that the NCAA is following MLB's take by rewarding mediocrity. Yeah. Do you see the, that they're going to – they're considering – I think the ACC proposed it, a 350-team NCAA tournament. Uh, I don't know if it was the ACC that proposed it or uh, if Jim Beheim proposed it so that Syracuse could have I think just one year actually without it. being on the bubble. We, we just want one year of Syracuse basketball where the Orange we are not are on the bubble. two minutes into this podcast and you brought up Syracuse, so that's yeah, it. Well, we have to on every podcast. It's a requirement. <laughs> no, we have gone several without. We are uh, breaking our own rules at this, at yeah. this stage. How it should that, be a requirement. Be, beyond, before we get into why they would do that, how would they do that? Wouldn't you have, like, way too many games and just some make would, it would have, like, a 60-round buy? Just make it the season. You have, like, yeah. a 10-game season, and then the rest of the year is some ridiculous, like, 350-team round robin. I just can't wait to see Virginia be the first one seed to lose to a... A 356 <laughs> seed. <laughs> yeah. uh, all right. 
Let's get into baseball, Brendan. Baseball. Let's uh, talk about this Orioles team because, boy, has this been an exciting past couple weeks. And uh, it is – our excitement is muted only slightly by the fact that they lost a very difficult game last night, 7-6 to six, to the New York Mets. A game that, weirdly enough, on September 9th felt like a must-win for the Baltimore Orioles. Yeah. Uh, just because they were winning so much at that point. And they had the Yankees won, so the Orioles needed to win to stay a half game back. They lost. They're a game and a half back in the wild card. They are still, I think, four-ish games back in for that second spot in the division. This team still, at this point, even after last night's loss, has a legitimate chance to make the playoffs. And we will be the first to tell you we underestimated this team. Our podcast from the beginning of the year look bad in terms of our predictions for yeah. this team. But at least we have good company because the entire baseball world underestimated this baseball team. And 2020 is a weird year, and you can write out, you know, <laughs> write off this team for all the weirdness that is surrounding this this 2020 baseball season. But the fact that they are still two games below 500, they are in the race on September 10th, a game and a half back of a playoff spot is absolutely mind-boggling. Yeah, I, I said on the prediction podcast before the season that I thought the Orioles would go 20 and 40, I think I said. So uh, I am... I think I had no, uh, tw- 19 and 41. Yeah. Which so was very the, glad the, to be wrong. The Vegas over-under for this team, I think, was 20 and a half games. 20 and a half wins yeah. for this team. They have just hit 20. So they are 20 and 22. So it wasn't just us, at least... It was everybody. Yeah. But you look at this team on paper, and of course, of course that that was the expectation. But it's just every single, almost every single guy has outperformed expectations. And the crazy thing is, we talked about everything that would have to go right for this team, for them to make the playoffs or to be in the the playoff hunt. And those things haven't even gone right. They did not get the career year out of Chris Davis or the bounce-back season that we said had, they had to have if they wanted to make him. We haven't seen Austin Hayes healthy in several weeks. We thought he had to be a big contributor. We thought John Means had to be a major contributor and an ace for them to be in the postseason hunt. None of those things have happened, and they are still there. Yeah, and, and they've gotten the benefit as well of teams like the Yankees and the Astros falling off a little bit, doing a lot worse than most people thought that they would. The Orioles are just two games back in the win column of the Astros right now. The Astros are 22-22 and 22 at 500. The Orioles sit two games behind them. But you're right about that Mets game last night. I think that is going to be a much bigger game than people expected it to be. Because if you win that game, you keep the pace with the Yankees. Mm-hmm. You're just a half game behind at that point rather than a game and a half. And you go into that Yankees series winning six straight games with a reeling Yankees team. But you lose that game last night, a game that you should have won. And if you're a team that's going to make a playoff push, you've got to win the ball games when you're up 5-1. to one. Yeah, but I feel like also the Orioles have won so many games that they probably should not have oh, won. Oh, absolutely. So it, it all comes around and goes around in, in baseball. And it also, a win last night would have given them a little bit more distance from the rest of the pack. Because amazingly, the Detroit Tigers and the Seattle Mariners are the two teams right behind them, which are great stories in and of themselves. Two teams that I thought were going to be probably bottom five teams in baseball. I thought these three teams might be bottom five teams in baseball, and all of them are within shouting distance of the playoffs. But 
We talk about this series because this is an absolutely massive series with the Yankees. There are just, what, 18 games remaining for this Orioles team. Brendan, how can they make the playoffs? What, what is the most realistic chance and path for the Orioles to actually make the postseason? It, it's going to be tough. Um, the two teams that the Orioles have to chase are the Yankees and the Astros, two teams that are underperforming. Uh, but when you look at the Orioles' schedule, this series upcoming against the Yankees could go a very long way in determining which one of those teams makes the playoffs. Because if you're the Orioles, I mean, if you sweep the Yankees, somehow you are in a fantastic spot hanging on to that last wild card. But this Yankee series becomes more important as well because you've got really good teams on the horizon that you have to play if you're Baltimore. After this Yankee series, you have a series against the Braves, then a series against the Rays. And then you get a little bit of an ease up against the Red Sox, and then you've got the Blue Jays after that. So three of the next four teams that you're facing, four of the next five, if you include the Yankees, are objectively uh, better teams on paper than the Orioles are right now. Yeah. And then you look at the Astros' schedule, and they've got a ridiculously easy schedule. They play the Athletics tonight, and then a quick two-game series against the Dodgers. Those are their hardest games by a mile. Then you've got the Rangers, Mariners, Rangers again, and the Diamondbacks. So would they... The, the thing is, though, the Astros currently are the second team in their division. So they would have to be caught by the Mariners. Right. In order yes. for the Orioles... Because they are not within... The Orioles cannot catch the Astros. Right. They can only catch the Astros if the Astros are a wild card team. Right. So they would have to be caught by the Mariners, which is possible. Right. Which yes. is possible. But I think the, the most likely... Is, is that you're yeah. catching the Yankees. Right. And the Yankees schedule as well... You've got the Orioles, and then you've got the Blue Jays, Red Sox, Blue Jays again, and Marlins. So the Yankees are currently two games back of the Blue Jays. I think there's a chance, though, that the Orioles catch the Blue Jays and that the Blue Jays fall off. The Yankees take that second spot in the division. I think there's a good chance of that. Yeah. And then the Orioles are chasing the Blue Jays, which (laughs) is... Because the Yankees theoretically should be a better team. If the Yankees get healthy... They are a better team than the Blue Jays. I think even even with all these injuries, on paper, I think they're a better team than the Blue Jays. Yeah. They just got embarrassed up in Buffalo. But if if the Orioles end up having to chase down the Blue Jays, that that series up in Buffalo where they lost, what, three straight games all in like the ninth inning or later, and Randall Gritchick just destroyed them, yeah. that series is going to loom so large. Because those were such, such winnable games. And it might the season might come down to that. Well, and it, the season might come down to the last weekend of yeah. series of the season, which is in Buffalo, right? There's a very realistic scenario where if the Orioles hang around 500, you maybe get one or two against the Braves, maybe get one or two against the Rays, and then hopefully take two of three or three of three against the Red Sox. There is a realistic scenario where you are within three games of the Blue Jays. If we're assuming that the Blue Jays are going to be caught by the Yankees and be that second wild card team. Yeah. There's a very real scenario where the Orioles' playoff hopes come down to a three-game do-or-die series against the Buffalo Blue Jays. <laughs> 2020. 2020. A- absolutely crazy. And... The other thing about this season is not only is it unpredictable from the standpoint of 
bad teams are good and good teams are bad, but it's impossible. We just looked at the schedule for the last couple weeks, and we can try to parse it out, but it is so difficult to predict which games teams are going to win because bad teams are beating good teams, I feel like, way more regularly than they have in previous years. Yeah, no, absolutely. It is very, very unpredictable from that standpoint as well because – Usually, when you have some teams that are outperforming expectations, like perfect example, that weekend series in, or this, I guess, week series in Buffalo between the the Blue Jays and the Yankees. Uh, Blue Jays come in riding pretty hot. The Yankees are still the better team. You would expect in a regular baseball season, Yankees just beat them down and just, you know, effectively put them in third in the division and, you know, diminish their playoff hopes. But in this season, the, the anything can happen. We are seeing so many weird and wild scores, box scores on a regular night. The, the Braves scored what, 29? 29 to 9 yesterday. And 19 to nothing. Two yeah, games the, yesterday. The 19 run game just completely got swept aside yes. by the fact that the Braves scored 29 and Adam Duvall was, had three home runs and nine RBIs. I really wish that they had hit 30. And I really wish, just from an Orioles standpoint, because of the 30-3 to game. Yeah. And uh, yeah. that was just could not be discussed anymore. But, unfortunately, it will still be in the discussion in baseball history. But yeah. it, I, 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 w- I was thinking about why there have been – I feel like we've seen more blowouts, too, this year. And I was thinking about why that is. I think maybe one reason could be that that Braves game yesterday. Like, the the crowd noise stays the same the entire game. It's not like it – you know, slowly ramps up through the first couple innings as people are taking their seats, and then the seventh, eighth, ninth inning, everybody heads to their cars and heads out. It's like the same dull roar the entire yeah. game, pretty much. So the players just keep playing; like yeah. they just keep going. They don't they don't worry about. There's no like energy drop off breaking at all the of end the unwritten rules. Yeah, yeah. Like it's not like Braves fans went home and were like, ah, we're up fifteen to eight. I'll just head home, you know, and because yeah. we'll win. It's like no, they're it's imagining like there's still a, a packed ballpark. I mean, everything about this season is ridiculous. Yeah. The games, the schedule, the wild card standings, everything. All of the standings, Yeah, frankly, at this point. All right, well, let's talk about the specific reasons that the Orioles have gotten as far as they have so far. And a huge, huge portion of it has been the rookies. And we've talked about on this previous po- on previous podcasts the first wave, quote-unquote, of Orioles podcasts, of Orioles prospects, (laughs) and the second wave of Orioles prospects. And I thought we'd kind of break it down specifically because we use these terms generally. But in terms of first wave, I think the guys that we're talking about are guys that either made their debuts in 2019, have already made their debuts in 2020, maybe will make their debuts in the last 18 games, or guys that are planned to make their debuts early 2021. So these are the guys, most of, whom, most of whom Michael Elias has not drafted. Maybe some of them he brought into the organization via trade. And then when we talk about the second wave of prospects, that's like the last year of Dan Duquette, first two years of Michael Elias. So first wave, I think of guys like Austin Hayes, Hunter Harvey, Ryan Mountcastle, Yusniel Diaz, Dean Kramer, Keegan Aiken, those kind of guys. And the second wave is like the Adley Rutschman, Grayson Rodriguez, D.L. Hall, those kind of guys. Did we underestimate the first wave? Short answer is yes. Long answer is definitely. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, every single one of the guys who has come up so far 
has either met or exceeded expectations. I think with the maybe one, I don't even want to call it an exception because I don't think we've seen enough of Austin Hayes to determine whether or not he's met his expectations, but he's played well in the times that he's actually been on the field. He's been dealing with injuries so far this season and didn't have a lot of game time last year. But everybody who has come to the majors so far has made a big contribution, and we were kind of looking at this first wave saying, okay, if the Orioles can get good contributions from some of these guys, they'll be in a really good position for when the second wave of prospects comes up, the Adleys, the Grayson Rodriguez, D.L. Hall, those types. I don't think we really considered what if these guys come to the majors and more of them play well than we expected and more of them exceed expectations. That leaves us in an entirely different scenario where the first wave is playing really, really well and the second wave is only going to add better pieces to a solid foundation that's already there right. rather than the second foundation, second wave, excuse me, being that foundation. Right. And I think when you look at the expectations for those guys, we had partly lowered expectations also because I think in general there were slightly lowered expectations for these guys. Um, in terms of prospect rankings, you know, Austin Hayes graduated technically last year. Um, Hunter Harvey graduated last year. Ryan Mountcastle rated as the Orioles, currently Orioles' fifth best prospect in the system. But beyond that, it's like guys that are right in the middle of the MLB pipeline top 30. You know, Yusniel Diaz is an eight. Michael Bauman is a nine. Dean Kramer is the 10th overall prospect. Keegan Aiken's like the 15th. And then when you talk about the second wave, that's when you have Adley Rutschman, number one prospect in the system. Grayson Rodriguez, number two prospect in the system. Heston Kerstag, number three, D.L. Hall, number four. So that's one through four of guys that weren't... We might see... Honestly, we might see Adley in 2021. But beyond that, I mean, we're probably not going to see Grayson until 2022 or D.L. Hall probably till 2022 and Heston Kerstad at least 2022. Right. So those are those are the second wave guys that are all ranked very, very high. Well, it's everybody in the top seven except for Ryan Mountcastle, right. who's already here. Yeah, and is already performing unbelievably. Oh, yeah. Unbelievably. We, we talked about Ryan Mountcastle when he came up. I, I remember we were both saying, like, well, I, I think he'll hit somewhere around 280. He's hitting 380. <laughs> O- OPS, I think, still over one. Is OPS is ten seventy five. Also is playing point oh seven five. Playing pretty passable left field is yeah. like noticeably not. I think that's the most important thing with Ryan Mountcastle is like we have not noticed him in left for the most part. No. He hasn't. He hasn't been tested, which is a, a great thing. We yes. have not noticed him. Yes, because maybe he's not making the greatest plays in the world, but he's not. But he's not making glaring mistakes. He's not He's not detracting from them. No, not at all. In left field, which, honestly, we had seen from previous left fielders on this 2020 yes. team. Yes. He is the the underrated aspect about Ryan Mountcastle, the speed. I don't think oh, yeah. anybody, except guys who would, you know, people who had watched him. I'm sure the people I mean, he's got, knew. he's got how many infield hits at this yeah. point? And, and the way that he runs, runs the bases. Yeah. I have seen him go first to third and read balls off the bat so incredibly well. I mean, he glides out there. He's a big, long dude. But he gets around the bases quickly. I don't think that it is an outlandish take. This is my opinion. I think Ryan Mountcastle is the best hitter on the Orioles. 
Yeah, I mean, at this point... I, I don't think that's an outlandish t- take I mean, by any stretch. Jose Iglesias is still mashing, and he still yeah. has uh, about a 400 average. But, but even but, with Jose Iglesias, like, we've seen him in past seasons not be this good. Yeah. So when you take a general scope of Jose Iglesias, he's maybe not as well, good. He's he's overperforming and, right now. And Iglesias still has not hit a homer so far in 2020. So right. great doubles power yeah. and hitting the ball to the gap. He's done that all season, but Mountcastle has legitimate pop i mean he's got at this point in his career if it, in 2021 he he will probably have 30 home run potential oh absolutely and right now he's hitting 383 <laughs> I, i'm not saying that this dude and, is going to hit he's 380 walking. and he's walking yeah. i mean he never walked throughout the that was, that was my biggest knock on him coming up was that, that was ryan mountcastle might strike out a lot and he might not walk his eye at the plate is so impressive yeah and I, I said this before he got called up. I do think maybe part of it is he's always looking to – he's such got such confidence, and he just wanted to mash in the minor leagues. Yeah. Like, I don't think he was worried too much about his walk rate. But now that he is being asked to now guide a team potentially to the playoffs, and he has slowly been moved up through that Orioles lineup. And is we talked about him, you know, maybe easing him in, maybe batting him sixth, which is what they did, batting him seventh, lower on the lineup. He's – at this point, like, he is undoubtedly, like you said, Brendan, your best hitter on the team. Yeah. In 2021, on opening day, he is going to be batting third, probably. Uh, absolutely. I, I don't see how he doesn't. Yeah. Unless, you know, it, no, I, I don't see how he doesn't. <laughs> I, I tried to think of something in my head to unless say. They sign um, <laughs> unless they sign somebody unbelievable. But this is a guy who, in 2021, we could look at and say he might hit around 315 with 30 home runs. He's that good right now, and he's also joining this first wave of prospects. He's joining a group of guys that are exceeding expectations. It's not just him. When you look at Dean Kramer and Keegan Aiken, yes, the sample size is very small. We shouldn't overreact to a grand total of three starts between those two. But no matter how many starts they have, it's the stuff that's impressive. Yes, it, yes. It's not the overall numbers. When you watch them pitch, they both look like big league starters. And and I think so many times you see guys come up that e- they have success to start their careers, but you can kind of tell that it's not going to last. Yeah. You know, they, they are, because they come up, there's maybe not a huge track record. Guys are not too prepared for what they have. First couple starts, they are just mowing guys down, but they're kind of fooling hitters or getting lucky. That start by Dean Kramer... I know it was not, obviously, the Yankees' best lineup. It was probably their, their C lineup. Right, but a bad Yankees lineup is still a, a good lineup. And it was real. I mean, you watch that. He was legitimately unhittable for large portions of those six innings. It was not a mirage by any stretch. No. He didn't get into too many. He got into one jam in those six innings. So he was, and it's not, it's not all going to be like that, of course. And we know, and... The Orioles fans know that they have seen some guys that have been mirages to start their careers and then fallen off. But that start by Dean Kramer was real. And when you talk talk about Dean Kramer and Keegan Aiken, in that middle pack with the Orioles prospect list, where you have Michael Bauman, you have Zach uh, Lowther, who's the 11th best prospect, you have uh, Alexander Wells, who's 20, and then you just got Kevin Smith over from the Mets in the Miguel Castro trade. I think... Realistically, Michael Elias is saying, of those, what, five or six guys, if we hit on one or two of them, then yeah. we're golden. 
I think they might have already hit on two of them. Yeah. That's crazy. And we've only seen two of them come up. Well, the thing is with this middle pack of pitchers is that you've got Bauman, Kramer, Lowther, Wells, Aiken, and newly acquired Kevin Smith, all of which you look at and say, okay, this guy has the potential to be somewhere in the three through five spot in the rotation. Yeah. And when you look at that, you've got the second wave of prospects, not to jump ahead, a Grayson Rodriguez and a DL Hall that have the potential to be a number one and a number two in the rotation. The rest of these guys can be a number three through five. And like you said, if you hit on one or two of those guys, fantastic. Because you've got four guys in your rotation over the next three years between the prospects that you're calling up. You've got seven guys that have the potential to be a a three through five in the rotation. What if you hit on four of them? (laughs) Yeah. If you hit on four of them and they all have you know, a number three in the rotation potential stuff. We haven't even considered that possibility. Well, in terms of the short term, we know that it, which is so exciting to hear, like Dean Kramer is going to be part of your starting rotation on opening day, 2020. Absolutely. Keegan Aiken will be in your starting rotation to start the 2021 season. You have John means who very encouraging start his last time out. Though you have a one, two, three punch already at the top of your rotation that are, again, you said three through five potential. These guys are not going to be, probably not going to be aces in their careers. But you already have three fixtures in the rotation to start a season. When was the last time we said that? Probably yeah. before the rebuild began. And, and even if somebody like Aiken doesn't stick in the rotation for the entire year, maybe he gets used as more of a long reliever swingman. You've got Bauman, Lowther, and Kevin Smith, who will all probably be up in 2021, who are all yeah. higher-rated prospects than Keegan Aiken. Are we going to see any one of those three guys that you just mentioned in 2020? I doubt we'll see Kevin Smith games left. because he was just acquired. I assume he's going to get some work at the alternate site. If you're just trading for a guy who is a prospect, I doubt you're going to call him up to the majors that quickly. I'm sure the Orioles probably want to see what you have in Kevin Smith and maybe call him up early in 2021. I think if there's anybody who has a... I think if you're going to give one of those guys the best shot of being called up right now, I would say it's Zach Lowther. I think Lowther is going to have a chance to maybe start a game or two towards the end of the season. But I think Michael Bauman also has a chance... I think because he's a little bit higher rated on the prospect rankings that maybe you want to give him just more time and have him good and ready to go for 2021. I think they could go the same route with Lowther as well. But I think if we're going to see one more, my my money would be on Lowther. Probably. I would probably agree with you there. And that would be exciting too because I'm a big Zach Lowther guy. Pitched in double A last year. Uh, through the first couple months of the season, had like a one-something ERA. I think he led the Eastern League in strikeouts last year. So that guy, <laughs> you talk about, and he has just not even made his big league debut, and you're right. already talking about having these fixtures in the rotation. The only, I guess, guys that would be slightly concerning at this point is Yusniel Diaz that we still have not seen, and considering the fact that we have seen many injuries to this Orioles outfield, we, he still has not gotten the call up. Mm-hmm. And that might be of, of slight concern. It at least makes you wonder why he has not gotten that call up. Yeah. And it is clear that the Orioles do not think he's ready at this point. Which is crazy because this this first wave, I thought 
you know, go back a year before or a year and a half before Adley Rutschman was drafted, he was top three prospect in the Orioles system. And he has clearly not been healthy or productive enough to get the call up. And we've already seen major returns from this first wave. Yeah, and he's dealt with some injuries in the minors, but you can look back to that Manny Machado trade as well and almost say if Dean Kramer is going to be a number three in the rotation or somewhere close to that, yeah, that's still a, a quality return for half of a season of Manny Machado where you're not going to resign him. Right. So e- even if Diaz does not pan out the way that you hope, if Kramer turns out to be really solid, you'd still take that return. Yeah, I think in the offseason we should really delve into the yeah. five guys that the Orioles got back. Because you're going to start to see, we'll be able to evaluate that Manny Machado trade over the next few seasons. Because you'll start to see those guys hit the majors, and that's when we can really say, okay, did the Orioles get a good enough return for Manny? And honestly, considering Manny was going to walk anyway, the Orioles were not going to make the playoffs that year anyway. I mean, it's it's tough to say who won and lost a deal like that. Yeah. You know, especially considering the, the Dodgers did not win the World Series that year. Right. Um... But anyway, we'll save that for another yeah, day. But the other, guy, the other guy I do want to talk about in this first wave, Austin Hayes, potential to come back. Um, and and Brandon Hyde has hinted at that. He has been injured since he got hurt in the ribs, which, boy, I got scared last night seeing oh, Ryan Mountcastle yeah. take that pitch directly to the ribs last night and thought immediately of Austin Hayes, who had a you know non-displaced fracture in his ribs. This might be a lost season for Austin Hayes. And considering how well we have seen Cedric Mullins play since he has come back from the alternate site, is Austin Hayes going to have a job when he comes back? Yes. I say yes with a little bit of hesitation. I think Austin Hayes will have a job when he comes back because I think he's too good defensively at the very least to not have a job. He's also a better hitter than he was playing like early on this season. I think he was in a little bit of a slump to start the year, and when he started to pick things up a little bit, that's when you know he unfortunately got, got hit in the ribs and was, was out for a while. I think Cedric Mullins offers you a lot defensively, and he's been a, a solid leadoff hitter. I think in an ideal world, you bump Cedric Mullins maybe down to the 8 or 9 and have like a, a second leadoff guy, and you have Austin Hayes back in that leadoff spot. I think realistically, you could probably bump one of those guys to right field. I know DJ Stewart is lighting the world on fire right now. And I think all of us owe DJ Stewart an apology for uh, not thinking that he was going to uh, to hit how at this you, level. I mean, how how could you not expect he was going to oh, hit yeah. five homers in four games? Yeah. How could you not see that I mean, they, they have that like magic stuff from Space Jam that they give him at halftime. I think that's what they gave to DJ Stewart down in Bowie. But he's been fantastic, and, and he's been a staple in the lineup for the last five, six games to the point where you have to keep him in right field. But if DJ Stewart starts to you know regress towards the mean a little bit and not hit a home run every single game, I think there's a pretty good chance that you bump Cedric Mullins to right or bump Austin Hayes to right, whichever one you think gives you more value in center field, you keep him there. But I think just defensively, either Mullins or Hayes will give you more value in right field than DJ Stewart would. And I think Stewart then becomes kind of the fourth outfielder where he's either DHing, maybe you could bump DJ Stewart down to first base, see how he does there. You know, you want to keep him in the lineup if he keeps hitting, but Hayes just has too much value defensively 
to not have in the lineup. And I do think they want to give him Hayes a chance to kind of get his confidence back. Oh, absolutely. And regain yeah. the form that we saw from 2019. Because, I mean, if he if he's does not come back or doesn't really start or you know that that could hurt his confidence going into 2021. It was he struggled to start the year. Tiny sample size again, and we do still think he's going to be a a solid major leaguer. You know, at yeah. this point, and I'm not going to get too caught up in his struggles so far in 2020. Yeah, I mean, if Austin Hayes stayed healthy, I predicted that he would lead the team in OPS. Yeah, I think he's he, still got the potential, and he was starting to turn it around when he got injured yeah. too. And he played with a broken rib for like almost a week, I think. Yeah, at the start of August, so. Yeah, I think he'll be able to turn that around eventually. And he'll make some tweaks going into 2021. Um, and But it, it on the flip side of that, Cedric Mullins has been... So I, I think every... I guess the trick is just send every guy back down to the alternate site for like a week. Yeah. Because it worked with Cedric Mullins. It worked with DJ Stewart. They came back and are now producing at unbelievable levels uh, at this point. So that is very exciting. And uh, And the guys who got called up? From that alternate site, Ryan Mountcastle, Dean Kramer, and Keegan Aiken. I don't know what they're, what kind of meal plan they have. Yeah, that's Louis. what I'm saying. I don't know what they're doing, but it, it's it got to be the special stuff from Space Jam. It's got to be uh, whatever Buck Britton and Gary Kendall are doing down there. Huge credit to them. Oh, they are doing a fantastic job because every single guy <laughs> who has either been called up from starting at the alternate site or been sent down for you know a, a little mental reset. That, reset, whatever you want to call it, yeah. has been fantastic yeah. at the Major League level. Um, real quickly, I do want to talk about, because we got a comment, I think Romeo Santos on Facebook, we are live, of course, uh, got a comment about Ryan Mountcastle, Rookie of the Year. It is funny because he said, would he be eligible for Rookie of the Year next year? Which, if you look at it on its face, he's going to end up playing about 40 games this year. So, in a regular season, if you only play 40 games, in theory, you might be eligible for Rookie of the Year next year. Yeah. Like, if you play 40 out of 162, you might be eligible but for But then do they but for extrapolate this, he, it yeah. and say, I think he's I don't gonna, know. I think he's technically a rookie this year. Uh, you know, okay. I think. Yeah. So let's throw him in the rookie of the year conversation for this year. In a normal season, this these would be bonkers stats for a rookie, the numbers that he is putting up. But I do think he is going to be passed by some of the best rookies we have seen in, like, decades. Yep. The American League and all of baseball is filled with some of the best rookies we have seen. You predicted Luis Robert would win Rookie of the Year. He very well could at this point. He's on his way. Um, you have so many other guys, and you look at where Ryan Mackcastle fits into that picture. Coming into yesterday's games, 32 American League rookies had played more games than Ryan Mountcastle so far. And Mountcastle has, is going to finish with two-thirds of the season under his belt. Yeah. But we have seen so many guys get the call up, get the call up, and so many guys perform well because of COVID, because of injuries, because of uh, expanded rosters, because of the alternate site being so close. Six AL rookies had more homers. Eight AL rookies had more hits. Five AL rookies had more RBIs, and that's just on the hitter side. Um, Luis Robert is hitting 265 with 11 homers. He's a center fielder. Kyle Lewis for Seattle. He's hitting 313 with nine homers. So unfortunately, I do not think Ryan Mountcastle will get the recognition he deserves for this breakout rookie year. Yeah, I mean, the thing, Luis Robert has played 41 games. Kyle Lewis has played 42 games. If Ryan Mountcastle plays 40-something games, 
his batting average is probably not 383, but if he might be hitting somewhere in the mid 300s and have what 11, 12 home runs and put up really solid offensive numbers. Right now, his OPS is over one. Yeah, it's 1075, which is better than Luis Robert and Kyle Lewis. But I just I don't think you can give him the nod based purely on the fact that he has not played enough games. Luis Robert is probably the second or third best player on a Chicago White Sox team that did not make the playoffs last year and is now the second or third best team in the American League. And Robert is not only fantastic at the plate, he's great in center field, and he also just has a lot of buzz around him, which I think can go a long way in rookie of the year voting. So I think I would probably give the nod to Robert, but if it doesn't go to Robert, I think the second guy, like you said, is probably Kyle Lewis because he is a major reason that that Mariners team does not have like 12 wins. You know, there's hovering around 500 and Kyle Lewis is a, a big reason why. So I think one of those two guys probably gets American league rookie of the year. That's not to say that Mountcastle hasn't been fantastic because he's been lighting the world on fire since he got called up to the majors, but he just hasn't played in enough games to get the nod. In this weird season, you pretty much had to be an opening day starter on the, yes. you know, on, on your team to be to win rookie of the year. Yeah. Because otherwise you just didn't have a chance. But I think a good consolation prize, if assuming he doesn't win rookie of the year for Ryan Mountcastle would be a postseason appearance. Absolutely. Still at this point on the table as the Orioles take yeah. on the Yankees for a four-game series tonight. Forget football. We've got this meaningful Orioles baseball in September. In this on September tenth. Yep. That's awesome. Let it breathe. That's that awesome. Is, yeah. At, at least enjoy it for this for this time period. And and no matter what happens against the Yankees this weekend, the fact that they are here is a credit to Brandon Hyde. It's a credit to the the players. Uh, and it's a credit to Michael Elias in, in the front office as well. Yeah. Um, we were all wrong about the Baltimore Orioles. We were all wrong. And we're looking into the camera because we know you were wrong. But that's okay because <laughs> we were all wrong we, on the Baltimore we were, Orioles. Yeah. Alex Fast is never wrong. He is the VP at Pitcher List. And he is one of the – I had a conversation with him earlier. And I learned more in those 15 minutes than uh, about statistics and deep statistics in baseball – than I had learned reading any material over the past like year. Yeah. Uh, really, really bright guy. Orioles fan growing up. Talked to him earlier today. Here's our interview. Now we're joined by Alex Fast of Pitcher List here on the Masson All Access Podcast. Alex, thanks so much for hopping on. We like to pretend that we know something about advanced statistics and we throw out like expected batting average and stuff like that, but you guys deal with such more interesting and intricate statistics than we have ever delved into on this show so thank you for uh talking about these today yeah thank you for having me and trust me I, i'm really just making it up as i go along you know what i mean if every listener's fear is true i just make up a new baseball stat each night and then i try and make it popular you know <laughs> yeah exactly i mean that's we we get criticized all the time of trying to use statistics to fit the narrative and i'm sure that mm -hmm. uh Everybody who has ever dealt in statistics has to deal with that as well. Uh, but we're going to talk about a lot of interesting storylines on this Orioles team, mostly focusing, of course, on pitching. Let's start with the two rookies that we have seen over the past week, Keegan Aiken and Dean Kramer, two guys that have gotten off, off to terrific starts in their big league careers. Dean Kramer making his debut six innings against the Yankees. Keegan Aiken now has an ERA under three in a couple starts what have you seen from these guys beyond just their counting stats? Are the, the underlying numbers as good as what we have seen on the surface? 
Yeah, it's a great question. And I, I mean, listen, when, when it comes to like counting stats, uh, you want to look at reliability, right? And those things really take a long time before they can become reliable. And there's a lot of really helpful stats to look at, right? Like there's a lot of really good batted ball stats and K rate and stuff like that. And we want to look at that as guys get a big enough sample size, but that doesn't mean that we can't evaluate them in a small sample size. The things that we want to look at though, are things that are more pitch specific, right? So like a pitcher's spin, that's really not going to change that much over the course of a season. You know what I mean? It's going to maintain pretty regularly. So if we start with Keegan Aiken and we're looking just at his fastball, one of the things that we get really excited about when we're talking about fastballs, obviously, is spin. Like how much spin is that pitch getting? And then how much active spin, right? How much of that spin is how much of that spins contributing to movement? We talked about this in that kind of last mass and segment I did last week. If we look at Keegan Aiken, we see 2,400 RPM of fastball. Out of context, that means nothing. It's a big number. Why do we care, right? It's really good to know it's top 30 in baseball. That's important. It's also top 20 in active spin. So that means a lot of that spin's contributing to movement. Now, here's where we're going to go really deep, and I hope I don't lose anyone here because it's actually really exciting, okay? He is really good at something called Bauer units. Now, uh, Bauer units, I understand it's out there. It's it's something created by Driveline. And yes, it is named after Trevor That's Bauer. That's exactly what I was going to ask. <laughs> yes, it, it is fully created, uh, you know, with Trevor Bauer in mind. But it's actually really important, right? So I know people listening being like, oh, my, you made fun of these new stats. And now <laughs> we have something called Bauer units. Let me let me at least break it down real quick. Give it a shot before we before we throw it in the trash can. OK, so it's a real a Bauer unit is a really good way to compare spin rates at different velocities, right? So a pitcher spinning the ball at 2,400 RPM is less impressive at 99 miles an hour, but it's really, really impressive at 89 miles an hour, right? And that's a quote from Driveline's website. So while Keegan Aiken has a bunch of movement and a bunch of active spin, he doesn't really have a lot of velo, right? He's sitting 92, he's sitting 93. So if we use Bauer units, the formula for that is really simple. It's velo divided by spin rate. And that kind of normalizes all the velos and spin rates together to put everything on the same plane. Um, and he's actually top 20 among active starters in terms of Bauer units. That's really, really, really good because essentially it's saying, hey, the 92 might not matter as much because he's getting so much spin off fastball. If we normalize it, right, if we put it on like a WRC plus scale where 100 is about league average, anything above is really good and anything below is, is not that great. He has a 106, which means he's about 6% better than league average top 20. So once again, while Keegan Aiken's fastball velocity might not be great, it's really, really good movement profile wise. It's why you see that 11.2% swinging strike rate on his four seamer, which is not only above league average, it's right around Lance Lynn. And Tyler Glasnow, like those are like that's the that's the list of fastballs that you want to be on in baseball right now. Um, I'm I, I that was a long winded answer just about Keegan Aiken. I imagine there there may be some questions about that before we get on to Dean Kramer. That was awesome. I mean, <laughs> Keegan Aiken, <laughs> it, uh, we had heard so much about him coming up and how much he used the fastball, and he relied on it. Uh, I feel like we heard through the lower levels of the minor league to and sometimes extreme amount and then last year kind of mixed in the other pitches and realized he had to throw other pitches but that kind of gives great context into why he used the fastball so so much through the lower mm -hmm. levels especially a guy that typically you hear of a guy that uses the fastball that much through the lower levels and it's because they're hitting 100 miles an hour or something like that but that that shows yeah. that it was it is a pitch that 
seems to be unhittable uh, just because of those other statistics. And then Dean Kramer, you just <laughs> teased the right there, but is there anything in particular, obviously small sample size, uh, just the one start to his big league career, but were there, were there any anything that stuck out to you about his first big league start? Was there? Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, there was. There was something really exciting. Once again, not a big sample size, as you just said. So therefore, let's focus on the on the mechanics. Let's focus just on the pitch by pitch basis. Um, it's really, really encouraging when you look at Dean Kramer's movement profile. Um, we talk a lot about pitch tunneling, right? And when it comes to pitch tunneling, we want a really big variety in movement, but we really want pitches to stay on that same plane for a long time. We want it to stay on the same plane right until it gets to the batter and then go in completely opposite directions, right? Now, I, I can't really speak for how uh, how long Kramer's fastball and curveball stay on the same plane, but there is something really interesting in terms of the movement of his pitches. And once again, we're going to go down a little rabbit hole, but I promise it means good things. Um, I took every single pitcher that's thrown at least 100 fastballs and 50 curveballs, okay? okay? I gathered how much vertical movement they get on average on the fastball, and I gathered how much vertical movement they got on average on the curveball, right? And then subtracted the two. Because you want to see a big difference in break, right? You right. want a lot of fastball movement, but you also want a lot of curveball movement. And then the bigger the difference between the two, the more of a movement profile that pitcher has. Dean Kramer, as of now, has a nearly top 10 difference between his fastball vertical movement and his curveball vertical movement, which is really, really exciting. Let's not forget, this is a guy that the Los Angeles Dodgers drafted, right? They knew about this movement profile profile coming in. He threw and the other thing that's kind of interesting about him too is he did something that Kyle Bodie, who's the founder of Driveline, hinted about on Twitter recently when he said the time of the high changeups and high curveballs is finally here. And he actually threw a few of those high curveballs which is really exciting and important, I think, for people to hear because sometimes we see a high curveball and we're like, ah, he missed, he got away with one. You know, maybe a guy takes him deep. Why is he throwing a high curveball? A high a high curveball can be a really important asset for a guy like Dean Kramer and anyone who can throw it well. When I throw a high curveball, that looks like a mistake coming out of my hand, right? It looks like it's going to completely sail off. Next thing you know, drops right into the top of the zone for either strike three or any other strike that's going to get him ahead in the count. So I'm curious to see if Kramer does that. But at the end of the day, that movement profile difference between those two pitches, oh yeah, that's something to be uh, uh, paying attention to moving forward. That's awesome. And, and that's something I feel like we saw you know, with the naked eye in that game. You talk about that high curveball. I feel like he threw one of those to Luke Voigt earlier on that dropped mm -hmm. into like high and in tight corner and not only can you get some called third strikes but you might get some swings and misses with that stuff I mean Kramer absolutely in his first start passed the eye test and and it feels like everything that you mm. have just said about the statistics backs up exactly what we all saw uh last Sunday against the Yankees so that's exciting and then we talk about let's shift gears and, and talk about some of the slightly more veteran guys still young but Tanner Scott uh coming out of the bullpen mm -hmm. a guy that we have heard about for forever uh, in terms of having great stuff and just commanding it has been been his biggest concern. This year, according to Fangraphs, he is throwing the fastball less or fastball more rather and the slider less and he really is pretty much a two-pitch pitcher at this point. So that's on more of a surface stat, but is there anything any reasoning maybe for that or is there any any other reasoning that he's had such great success in 2020? 
Yeah, we're going to notice a theme kind of throughout as we talk about some of these pitchers when it comes to increased spin rates, right? And this is something that's happening a lot with pitchers in this organization, which is really exciting. Tanner Scott saw a really noticeable jump in his spin rate and a jump in velo as well. Much more effective at putting the ball in the zone when he needs to. And batters are squaring it up far less than last year when he's throwing it in the zone. Overall, they're making contact less, which is really great. Um, there's a metric called swing take. Uh, do you do do I have time to go into another crazy metric? Is Absolutely. that right? I know the, I keep going. This is like, the this is the benefit of of having a podcast. No time limit whatsoever. We we have no commercial breaks okay, to get to great. go into it. <laughs> okay. All right. Awesome. So there there is a metric called swing take. Right. Um, each pitch we're going to assign a run value. Negative is really really good for pitchers. Right. I'm going to throw a strike and that's essentially a negative run. You're not scoring on that strike. Mm -hmm. I'm going to throw a ball. That's a slightly positive run value, which we don't want for a pitcher. Um, you add those up over the course of the game, over the course of a year, and you get a full run value. So what they also do on baseball savant, they break it down by zone, heart of the plate, something in the shadow, like near the corners. Then there's the chase rate. And then there's, uh, the, um, uh, what is it? It's not shadow chase and uh, waste, excuse me, uh, the waste rate, which we don't really want to pay attention to. When it comes to over the heart of the plate, just over the heart of the plate, Tanner Scott has a negative six run value over the heart of the plate, which is top 15 in baseball. All that means is he can have a lot of success pounding the center of the plate with that fastball. I know we, you know, we grow up, we play baseball, don't leave it over the heart of the plate, but sometimes that can be a good thing. And it's working for Tanner Scott, really, really setting up that slider, right? The swinging striker on the slider has dropped a little bit from last year, but it's arguably more effective. Batters are only hitting 103 against his slider with an absurd 0.090, 90 Woba. He has an average launch angle of negative four on that slider. Wow. So that fastball, it's not just killing. I know it's crazy. It's like, guys just like pounding it into the ground. I feel bad for the, uh, the grounds crew at Camden Yards. Um, it, it's so you gotta be really excited about that fastball. I mean, he's, and once again, this isn't like, I, I can pretty much tell it like it is. I can look at stats and be like, no, nah, this isn't great. And when you look at his stats right now, there's a lot to like. Yeah, that is exciting there. And then of course, when I came up with these questions, this was before the Orioles bullpen blew a 5-1 to one lead to the Mets yesterday. But uh, mm -hmm. coming into that game, uh, Paul Fry, before he gave up a home run, he still, his overall numbers for the 2020 season are on pace to be the best in his career. A guy who, you know, is, is approaching yep. 30 years old, but has some value as a lefty coming out of the bullpen for Brandon Hyde's team. What have you seen from him, and are there is there anything that we're missing here that is contributing to his breakout season so far. Yeah. Yeah. And what a heck of a game last night. I think all of, I can speak for all of us when I say that there were a lot of expletives when Michael Conforto <laughs> caught that ball last night. So yeah. It was like a very not, not suitable for work reaction on that one. Um, yeah, so Paul Farai has been crushing it this year. He's got an expected ERA in the 99th percentile, which is really great. He did a really good job minimizing hard contact last year, but he's actually doing it even better this year, uh, which is interesting considering we're talking about, oh, everyone's spin is going up. His spin actually came down on the four-seamer, but two full ticks of velocity to the pitch, which you really love to see. And it's really kind of succeeding the same way the Tanner Scott's combination is, right? Fastball low, slider even lower. Batters have no idea whether it's going to be a fastball that just ends up right at their knees or if it's a slider that's going to fall off the table and they're going to swing and miss at it. What's even crazier is if you look at his expected metrics, right? His expected WOBA, for example, it's 100 points lower 
than his actual Loba, Woba on his four-seamer, meaning you can make the case that he's actually been a bit unlucky with that four-seamer so far. There could even be another gear for him moving forward. Wow, that's exciting as well. And this is an Orioles bullpen that has still been getting the job done despite the fact that they traded away two relievers in addition to trading away a starter as well, Tommy Malone at the deadline. I loved hearing you a couple weeks back, I think it was, on O's Extra talking about Tommy Malone and the reason he was having such a, a great year. Not having a great year so far for the Braves, but we'll save that for uh, another day. Um, let's talk about <laughs> – let's go back to the rotation, though, and talk about John Means uh, mm-hmm. because – guy who struggled to start the year and the talk about means mm-hmm. coming into spring training 2.0 I guess was the added ticks that he had on his fastball and his velocity has been up but we've heard also maybe some issues with fastball command and and maybe those added ticks to velocity make it just a little bit harder for him to keep that fastball in the zone is that something that the mm-hmm. advanced statistics back up as well yeah, 100%, especially when it's not just um, velocity, which is obviously improved. It's also spin and active spin. So we're now we're talking about a fastball that not only comes at you faster, but it moves a little bit more as well, right? And there could be a few reasons as to why he's struggling with command, or at least was at the beginning of the season. I think there were some small steps forward in that last start, which was really exciting. Um, you know, some of them can obviously be mental. It's a new pitch. He's trying to figure it out. Some of it, you know, he's trying to command it and really forcing it to the ways that he wants to go. I know he had a conversation with Brandon Hyde about that, about how he was pitching. The other thing is a term that other driveline people love to throw around, which is proprioception. I know another another great, <laughs> you know, it's a vocab lesson now. Um, uh, proprioception is like the, the, the ability to know how and where our bodies are moving. Like it's just kind of an awareness of your body. In theory, a, a batter, a, a pitcher has good proprioception. It should help their ability to be more aware of where that ball is being released, right? So if a, if a pitcher has a fastball that all of a sudden is moving in a completely different way, they need to be able to have the feel for that pitch and say, hey, you know, where am I commanding this? Where does it need to end up? All that is to say that, like, I don't think this is going to be a negative thing for means moving forward. That's the problem you want to have. You want to be able to have the problem of like, okay, now how do I command it? The real difficult stuff is adding the spin, adding the velocity. That's there, and man, you just got to be so excited for what happens when all of that clicks for John Means. I love how you brought that up because I think for some baseball purists, they get upset. I think at at in today's uh, day and age, how much emphasis there is on a pitcher's ability to throw different pitches, and there's less emphasis on you know command and it, it, than there used to be maybe because they they have so many guys that come mm-hmm. up to the big leagues that make their debuts that might not be there from a command standpoint, but the, the coaching staff can get them there. And it's it's easier to mm-hmm. teach them that kind of stuff than it is to teach them to add ticks to their velocity or add spin rate or something like that. So I think that's a great way to put that. Um, and then Hunter Harvey, another guy that uh, we talked about uh, that uh, last night, <laughs> again, gave up a home run to Pete Alonzo. But before that, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, was having – uh, a pretty solid 2020 season, marred a little bit again by injury to start the year. But, you know, th- this guy has had so many injuries and he still is hitting triple digits on his fastball, which is remarkable. But what have you seen from him from mm-hmm. an advanced statistic standpoint? 
Yeah, I mean, well, uh, two things uh, to, to to wrap up. Sorry, that that final thought about means because you, oh, yeah. you brought up a really interesting point. Actually, yeah, that that I that I think is really interesting. Like, I, I know that we can have these kind of advanced, you know, these talks about statistics and stuff, and people might be sick of like, oh, this is the way that the game is going. But the mental aspect of the game is the thing that means the most to me. I can look at baseball savant and fan graphs and understand these metrics all day. But the thing that gets me most excited about watching a baseball game is the thing that's completely unequatable, right? Yeah. I'm never going to be able to, there's no metric that's going to be like, oh, well, John Means has a 90 on mental game of command <laughs> on fastball. You know what I mean? It's, it's never going to be there. And that's what makes it so exciting because sometimes we just don't know. And I don't, I never want to give the impression that it's all numbers all the time. That's a really important aspect of the game when it comes to Hunter Harvey. Yeah, the sample, once again, really small. We're not seeing the same strikeouts as last year, which is a little bit scary. Um, In some ways, there is hope. In some ways, it's just a little bit frustrating right now. He's maintained his overall swinging strike rate. That's really good. You want to see that. Yes, he's getting fewer Ks, meaning he's not executing as well when it comes to two strikes, but he's doing a good job getting swing and misses. At least he's doing the same job he did last year. The location is really different and really interesting when it comes to that fastball. He's really focusing arm side a bit more, trying to come up and in right at the hands of righties, whereas last year was more so focused glove side. We've we've definitely seen him hit what we can we hit what he can velocity wise on the fastball, but he's also sitting a little bit lower and it's also trending in the wrong direction recently. I don't know if maybe he's trying to take a step back and get the command and feel for that fastball a little bit more, but I really want to see him start to hit 96, 97 again. Overall, though, to end on a positive note, they're encouraging numbers in terms of the contact he's giving up, right? Barrel rate is a really important metric that's thrown around all the time right now. A barrel is any ball that's hit with a 98 degree or more exit velocity and a launch angle between 25 and 31 degrees. If you're a hitter, you want barrels. If you're a pitcher, you want to suppress barrels. Last year in that small sample, Harvey had a 9% barrel rate. This year, it's down to 5.9%. So losing about three ticks in terms of barrel rate is really good. It may not look like it and people are you know, saying, well, I watched him give up a pretty hard barrel to beat Alonzo last night. <laughs> but overall, he's not doing that. And that's really good to see. That's a perfect transition to discussing Ryan Mountcastle, who's been able to barrel up a lot of mm-hmm. balls this year so far in his rookie season. He had four hits again last night. A guy that we had heard about 25 home runs last year, International League MVP. We knew he was going to put up some some power numbers and grab some doubles, but I mean, personally, I've just been impressed with the way that he has been able to punch balls, you know, to the short outfield to get a single or beat out a ground ball in the infield. He just seems to be a professional hitter already at 23, 24 mm. years old. What have you seen from him? Again, tiny sample size and just began his big league career. But are there encouraging stats there as well? There definitely are. And I mean, as an Orioles fan, it is really awesome to see. It's always good when my friends who aren't necessarily baseball fans text me about a player. And just yesterday, someone said, who's that guy who sounds like he's British royalty on your (laughs) baseball team? And why is he why is he so good? Uh, So, yes, uh, 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 Mr. Mountcastle or Sir Mountcastle, I guess I should say, he's just been knocking the cover off the ball, slashing 339, 397, 607, that 166 WR. Plus, the other thing that sticks out, I mean, this is a guy who never really had a, a walk rate above 6%. That was his highest in double A back in 2018. Now it's at 9%, being a little bit more patient at the plate. If you're breaking down pitches into just fastballs, just off speed, and just breaking, right? We're not focusing on, oh, it's a splitter, it's a change, it's a curve, whatever. 
he's hitting all of them. He's hitting 320 on all fastballs with a 600 slugging, which is amazing. And he's hitting 391 off of breaking pitches, right? (laughs) That's 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 put him in the Hall of Fame. He has a he has an over 400 Woba on every single one of those pitch types. And it's funny. I mean, like, let's let's put on our devil's advocate hat, right? And take a look at the pitching that he's destroying. He's he destroyed Tanner Roark, Ryan Brazier, Josh Osich, guys that you wouldn't necessarily think of like, oh, these are first ballot Hall of Famers. But it doesn't matter, in my opinion, because you want to be able to take advantage of those guys, right? You're going to struggle against your Garrett Coles, although he did have a hit against Garrett Cole, I believe. You're going to struggle against your Tyler Glasnows and your Blake Snells, but you're not always going to see them. What do you do against other starters? What do you do against back-end bullpen guys that you're going to see? And right now, Mount Castle is destroying them. His speed is really, really exciting. Some people might point to his BABIP or batting average on balls in play, which is about, I think, 360 and say, oh, wait, you know, usually that's supposed to be around 300. That's really not going to be great for him. It isn't great overall unless you have the speed. And that's what Ryan Mountcastle has. He's got the speed. So, man, I got to I got to order my like Orioles Ryan Mountcastle jersey now because <laughs> I'm excited about watching him moving forward. Yeah, I think a lot of Orioles fans are in that camp as well. This guy has been the real deal since he got called up. I, I remember a couple of weeks ago saying when he got called up on this podcast, there's I don't expect him to hit 300. And here he is <laughs> like three weeks into the season uh, in into yeah. his big league season. And he is approaching 400. So. What uh, an incredible season for him, and I'm glad we got to talk about some of those rookies as well because the Orioles are in a very good position with all of these guys who are still so young clicking, and they still have so many guys in the minors just waiting to make their their big league debut. So thank you so much, Alex, for hopping on here, breaking down all this information. I'm sure you're enjoying watching these games uh, growing up an Orioles fan, right? Oh, yeah, it's absolutely unbelievable to watch. And, you know, it, it, it reminds me of that feeling. Um, you remember the curse of the Andino, right? Yeah. That last year against the Red Sox. I remember a feeling sitting in my apartment watching that game of just the excitement of like, this is what's to come. And you get that same feeling when you're watching these young guys compete. So it's exciting to see what the farm system has in store for us. And just can't wait to keep watching some more Orioles baseball. Absolutely. He's Alex Fast and he's VP at Pitcher List. Of course, check him out and, and you can catch him on O's Extra pregame every now and again on Masson. Alex, thanks so much for hopping on. Thanks a lot for having me.